Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Formatted to Fit Your Screen, the show where two people who have seen a movie have a conversation. I'm your host, Zach Tennant, and this week on the show, I am joined by Paul Dufresne LaRoche for a discussion of 1977's Sorcerer, directed by William Friedkin, written by Waylon Green. This is a cool episode. This was a uh, guest pick on this one. Paul is a friend of mine, someone who I was interested in having on the show, someone who works in the uh, film industry here in Montreal as a second AC, and has a good uh, secondhand William Friedkin anecdote, as uh, he'll tell on this episode. Um, and this was his pick. This was a movie that I had never seen before, one that I had heard about and was curious about, but um, I'm glad that I got to check it out for the show and glad that we had a chance to sit down and talk about it. Uh, this is an episode where uh, Paul came prepared and he definitely uh, carries this episode. He is the MVP of this one and um, I credit him for elevating the conversation beyond what I could have brought to this one. I loved this movie and this was a cool conversation. Um, I'm a big fan of William Friedkin. Uh, not so much the movies, just the just the man and his personality. And his um, there's a good clip of him uh, talking with Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, where he tells him that Drive and uh, Only God Forgives are shitty movies. Very funny. Um, just a big, profane, loudmouth ego guy, and I love those kind of directors. This was also the first time I had a guest uh, come and record here with me in the formatted to fit studio, which was uh, exciting and a little different and a rare treat. So this episode has a bit of a different ambience from regular shows. And I'll just mention one last thing because I didn't have a chance to say it on the episode, I forgot, but I would really recommend that people check out uh, the short documentary The Devil and Father Amorth from 2017, William Friedkin's uh, to date uh, last project. It is a short documentary uh, in where he purports to, well, he shows an exorcism being performed and it is a, uh, it's a ludicrous cheesy delight. I saw it in 2017 at the Broadway Theater and uh, I would give it a hearty recommend. So if you find yourself with the opportunity to ever check that out, I would give it a recommend. Come back at the end of the episode, and I'll let you know who's joining me in two weeks' time. But for now, please enjoy 1977's Sorcerer with Paul Dufresne LaRoche. The novel, it has been said that uh, the film The Exorcist has taken the more exploitive elements of the novel and left out maybe some of the meatier aspects. Do mm -hmm. you want to comment on that? Sure. Who said that? First, let's, let's, let's talk about who said it. Okay. It has been said in some reviews. By who? Film critics. Which like, one? Okay, I don't have specifics with me, but that has been said. I've never heard that. Let's put it that way. So we're here today talking with Paul Dufresne LaRoche, new friend yes. of the show. Happy to have you on, Paul. You're the first in-person guest we've had here in the uh, formatted to fit studios here. So that's very exciting. Happy to have you on the show. And we're here today to talk about 1977's Sorcerer, directed by William Friedkin. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'd asked you about being on the show before, and it had been something we'd bandied about, and then you had the idea of coming on to talk about Sorcerer, so maybe we can just start off with that. I'd be a little curious to know about that choice and what had us sitting down here and talking about Sorcerer, which I had never seen before until we did this episode. Okay. I watched this for the first time yesterday. Oh, shit. Did you yeah. like it? Well, we'll get into it. We'll so, get into it. We'll see. So I'd, I'd love to know about uh, how this inspired choice came about. Um, well, uh, I had not heard about Sorcerer when I first got into uh, watching like freaking movies, uh, sure. uh, like the French Connection, and 
and uh, the Exorcist, because you know you can't really find you couldn't really find a copy back then. Um, but uh, I stumbled across Sorcerer uh, when I was in in Mexico shooting a film with uh, a few friends of mine in the Oaxaca region, mm-hmm. and uh, I asked them like, "What was your like inspiration? What? Why did you um, like? What kind of look were you going for?" And they had mentioned Sorcerer. I said, "Paul, did you watch Sorcerer? Like, this is." A film that we always have in mind when we're when we're shooting and when uh, we were writing and uh, it was sort of the look that we were going for like deep jungle vibes you know and uh, I was surprised like really like sorcerer okay fine I'll, I'll, I'll watch it so we shot over uh, it was two blocks over two years and uh, when I came back I watched sorcerer I immediately loved it. I fell in love with it. I, I, I felt really, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't go deeply in, into the, the history of it. Uh, I was, I was just fascinated by the film. And um, the next day, I, <laughs> the next day I watched it. I was working, I was working on a on a film, and I told a, a coworker of mine, uh, the, fir- uh, the first DC uh, I was working with, and uh, I told him I watched Sorcerer last night, and it was great. I loved it. And he laughed. He was like, "Oh yeah, cool." I was like, "I worked with Friedkin on <laughs> I, on on a film." Okay, here we go. And I was like, "Really? You you worked with William Friedkin? That's crazy!" Like, "Yeah, I worked on." Uh, okay, I don't remember the name of the film. Because, was it Killer Joe? No, it was not Killer Joe. Unfortunately, it was. He said, "I asked what film it was," yeah. and he told me, "I forgot the name of it." It's a oh, film okay. of the week. It was a TV movie. Film oh, of yeah. the week. Yeah. Uh, it was filmed in Montreal, <laughs> and uh, I'm just gonna look up. Yeah, of course. I'm just gonna look it up because it's just completely ridiculous. Well, I'm I'm excited to talk about Sorcerer, and then I'm also excited a lot to talk about William Friedkin because, for someone who I haven't seen so many of his movies, I didn't go back and look at the filmography, but Exorcist and French Connection are obviously the two that stand out, you know, highest above the others. I don't know if I've really seen a lot of his other work. He's had Killer Joe and Bug, I think, in his later career. He had To Live and Die in L.A. and Cruising with Al Pacino. I've seen that one as well, actually. That's a pretty fun movie. Um, But I just love William Friedkin as an old Hollywood guy who tells insane batshit stories about the people he's worked with and is so, like, full of hot air and shit and just a complete blowhard and like politically super like he he uses interviews he hijacks them when he's talking about films to just go on these lengthy diatribes about his personal politics and then insists that he's not a political person yeah he doesn't he, especially in sorcerer because sorcerer is a very political movie and definitely he, so he distances himself from the the those politics it's cat squad cat squad c-a-t squad and what's the year on this project 1986 television film starring joseph cortez interesting jack youngblood steve james like you know all these stars you know Mm -hmm, exactly (laughs) so so i so he told me like i worked with freakin and um and one day the first ad wasn't uh didn't come in he was sick so there was no first AD, but I didn't know there was a first AD. Uh, and how it usually goes, the first AD yells, roll sound, and then sound speed, and then there's the slate, and then uh, he announces the slate, he claps, and then action. 
But my colleague, who I'm not going to say the name of, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he didn't know this. So all he heard was freaking yell roll and then action. And then, this, <laughs> and then the actors start doing their thing. And uh, my colleague just raises his hand up and says, sir, 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 I'm not shooting. Uh, we're not yeah. shooting. And then <laughs> freaking says cut. Well, no one was shooting. So he, he just walked over to, to uh, my colleague. I'm calling my colleague. And uh, he just points his finger in his face and he says, when I say roll, the whole fucking world rolls. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, he was just like, okay, yes, sir, I can understand. And, you know, it was just unfortunate that he didn't know the first day he wasn't there. Uh, and the next day, after freaking watched the rushes, he fired him. Mm-hmm. He said rushes weren't good. He says it was out of focus, but... I don't think it was. <laughs> I think he just didn't like him. And he has a reputation of firing people. Well, so. <laughs> I think he also has just a reputation of like anyone that doesn't, that he doesn't see eye to eye with. Because like I said, yeah, Cruising with Al Pacino was the movie that he made after Sorcerer. And I, in multiple of the interviews I came across in preparing for this episode, he had a great quote that I, I didn't have to write it down to remember it. Uh, he was being asked about what Al Pacino said about working with him, and then he cuts off the interviewer mid-question and says, I don't give a flying fuck through a rolling donut what Al Pacino has to say. <laughs> and I think that's, um, yeah, that's emblematic of a guy who, if you just have like a disagreement on set, he holds that grudge for the rest of time. Well, he held that grudge because Al Pacino came late. Right. His first day to work, he, I think he showed up three hours late. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't like the way it was edited. He didn't like uh, the ending when it was ambiguous, where he may have been the one committing those murders. He didn't like that, and uh, he held it against uh, Friedkin to portray him this way. But dude, like half the budget was your fucking salary. Like, mm-hmm. calm down. I know it's your image and everything, but um, I think he wanted Richard Richard Greer to to play uh, the. Uh, in cruising. In cruising. You want him to, to play the main character. I think and, that uh, makes a little more sense than Al Pacino. Yeah. Who brings... But that's an interesting to wrap it back to Sorcerer that the casting in this movie, I think, was pretty good. I like this movie. I'll start off by saying I did enjoy this. Um, Roy Scheider in the lead, best known to most audiences, is the star of Jaws a few years before this movie. Uh, in a role that was originally offered to Steve McQueen, Jack Nicholson, Robert Mitchum, Clint Eastwood, Warren Oates, you know, a lot of other people's hands who had passed through and then it lands in the competent hands of Roy Scheider, you know, certainly not a handsome leading man movie star, but just this guy who really looks like a dad Yeah, and has a complete, um, like shoe leather face. <laughs> I think I think it elevates this movie and makes it into a stronger overall piece as opposed to just being one of the shittier Al Pacino movies, which is what you might be left with when you look at something like Cruising compared mm. to Scarface or The Godfather or Dog Day Afternoon or anything else. I think I we should probably mention that if you haven't watched 
Like this is sure, yeah. just me. I'm just saying, if you haven't watched Sorcerer, go watch it because it's it's available now. Uh, it's available uh, in full on YouTube for free. I'll let people know. I didn't realize that until uh, after we had done the episode. I saw I, it by uh, by different means. I didn't even see it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> on, uh, on YouTube. Well, it's kind of it's that thing when movies are f- like in full on YouTube where it's like right there in broad daylight to see, but it also oh sort of doesn't goodness. show up when you search it. It's kind of like the seventh result or something. Okay. But if you just scroll down, it's there. Don't know how good the transfer is, but um, yeah, I would recommend watching it as well. It's a good taut two hours. It, um, I think it comes together nicely, but to talk, I guess, just to set it up with the premise or what this movie mm-hmm. is and what it comes from, it's pretty basic. It is uh, adapted from the novel, The Wages of Fear, and then originally... Um, there was the film adaptation of that in the 1950s, the French one. I don't know if have you seen that one. Uh, I'm in the process of watching it. I watched like half of it. Are you enjoying it? Because it's long, right? It's like it's two, two and, and a half, half hours. hours. Yeah, yeah, that's it's why. It's a Cuzo film. Uh, he was like, uh, like uh, baptized the new uh, master of suspense. I yeah, think it was. It was a very popular film. I told my dad about Sorcerer, and then he's like, "Oh, Wages of Fear." Yeah, I'm like, uh. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the R word. Yeah, <laughs> it's the remake. Yeah, um, and uh, so uh, he said he watched um, We Just a Fear with his with his cousin when he was much younger, and he really enjoyed it. A Palm Door winner in its day when it came out, <laughs> yeah. and then yeah, Cluzo went on to make uh, Diabolique a couple of years after that one. Another very good movie. Um, which kind of ripped off and remade in America as Psycho. So <laughs> so he's had a, an influence on American filmmaking. But yeah, Friedkin says that this movie isn't really... He says that it's not a remake of uh, the film Wages of Fear and that it's just a different interpretation of the book and he compares it to Shakespeare, which is... You know, he compares himself to Shakespeare. He compares himself to a lot of different. Uh, uh, I think on that on, on that note, he's full of shit because he has said that it is a remake or a reimagining, or if it's not a remake of the film, it's a readaptation of the book, right? But uh, or a reimagining or whatever, it is very different than the original film and the book. Um, I don't think that uh, Will and Green, the screenwriter of Sorcerer, he didn't enjoy the book. The he didn't like it. Um, so much of Sorcerer's identity comes from his ex- past experience uh, living in uh, S- uh, Central America. So. Right. And yeah, Waylon Green, he was an interesting guy. Freakin was saying that he show ran Law and Order for 10 years oh, yeah? after this movie. Yeah, like he had written The Wild Bunch for yeah. Sam Peckinpah about a decade before this. And then this was one of his other major film screenplays. But then, yeah, I guess he like rewrote every episode of Law and Order. So all of those... Uh, second act twist where it's not the guy that they've arrested <laughs> it was wailing green presiding over that well, back to the premise yeah absolutely this wonderful masterpiece yeah so the premise um if i was to try to put it together loosely it's that four guys from different sets of circumstances that we see set up in a lengthy extended prologue sequence in this movie um they all come to find themselves living in Colombia due to choices, bad decisions, and fate. I think it's like a combination of sort of all of those things. Um, and they find themselves in a situation where in exchange for an easy payday or a fat payday, 
they're going to transport a bunch of very unstable TNT, which is so warm that it's sweating nitroglycerin, and they're going to transport it through the mountains, through these rickety passes in trucks where if they hit a pothole or anything like that, the trucks are going to explode. A very tense, direct, it's not any kind of... Um, it's a, it's a movie about the fear of an explosion killing you. Like, it's yeah. such a blunt. It's not any kind of... It's like if there's a bump, there will be a large, fiery explosion that kills you. A three-year-old could understand the, the, the premise of this film. Exactly. Like, that's exactly truck it. truck goes boom. Yeah. And the truck... Like, truck goes bump, and then there's boom. Like, truck go boom in jungle. Not good for yeah, Jaws, man. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not that's good for is. Jaws, man. That's what it is. Oh, I get it. Yeah. It is very simple, but I was impressed in the opening of this movie, which reminded me a lot of uh, Marathon Man, which came out the year before this uh, with Dustin Hoffman, which is another movie that has, and I was also watching uh, The Boys from Brazil uh, from a few years earlier on TV a couple days ago, but these like tense 70s thrillers that open with just a bunch of old men in suits in different parts of the world speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. you don't know it starts with a big lack of context and it comes into focus as the movie goes on but it really doesn't baby you in at the beginning of it it has so much conf- not confusion because if you know that it's paying off to something and have the patience to watch it you know it's going to make sense but there's so much before you know what the premise of this movie is going to be or where they're going to end up in the jungle in Colombia. Well, it, it's not really said where they are. It's, right. it's implied that it, well, it, it's in uh, South America or Central America. It's uh, a country that has been infiltrated by American or European um, companies and uh, that they have uh, interest in their um, uh, resources, like natural resources. Mm-hmm. These dummy, these dummy dictatorships that are, um, are put in place to protect uh, these um, the, the natural resources of these countries, so they can go back to like America or whatever. So American imperialism, yeah, capitalist much. greed, yeah, and exploitation uh, of third world countries, kind of just vaguely, without yeah. identifying it. Because yeah, it does. Because those big like eagle, uh, Nazi esque uh, pictures that you mm-hmm. see, like that are that are printed on uh, several flags or. Uh, items or, or like these huge uh, uh, oil silos uh, they, they remind you of that or like this is not a country that uh, has a lot of liberties you know that's right so it could be any one of of, uh, of uh, any, it could be any country in South America pretty much that is true the Wikipedia identifies it as Colombia oh, yeah? but, but it is that the movie like um, like that's the only reason that I mentioned it that wasn't okay. anything that I picked up in seeing it because it is like you said that it is the truck go boom movie like it paints in very big brush strokes it kind of sets up like entire countries and like nationalities are just they're purely to be like okay so you have like a feeling about if the scene takes place at the beginning of the movie in this part of the world like it just is playing so much on how it knows you're going to react to being like, okay, and now they're, they're in the jungle and it's sort of like a South American thing. So there's going to be sort of like former Nazi vibes, which once again, once again, like <laughs> boys from Brazil and marathon, man, these kind of seventies paranoid thrillers about aging, like senior citizens who are evil and have 
checkered past and are trying to run away from them and get blood money from it. Yeah, it is a it is interesting because all the prologues have uh, have a very precise uh, location. Mm-hmm. Paris, you got Jerusalem, and then you have New Jersey, uh, and then once they get or, or Veracruz, mm-hmm. and once they get to uh, South America, it doesn't say anything. Like right. you know the the name of the of the place it's Las Columnas or something like that and, something, and yeah. it, that's a fictional area it's it was filmed in the Dominican Republic but um, that place was run was a dictatorship and the the dictator was stoked that they were filming there because he was telling them oh you're gonna show them the beauty of of uh, of, uh, <laughs> of the Dominican Republic and freaking just in, in his mind was like I'm just no like I'm not, I don't want to show beauty I want to show this is a hell on like this is a hell hole like this is the worst place you could be. I'm not going to show a beauty, but, you know, he said, oh, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> like, And uh, to go back to these prologues mm-hmm. uh, and how it, they're so different than uh, from, from the premise. And you, it, it, you start watching the film and, uh, oh, maybe this is the wrong movie. Like, this is not about Chuck Boom. This is some yeah. guy in uh, Veracruz or this some guy in Paris. Uh, even my friend who recommended this film to me when he first watched it, because uh, the prologue is 25 minutes mm-hmm. and um he's trying to watch 16 minutes without english spoken is one of the things that i found in my research okay, at the well, start the, of this movie there's yeah. A, there's a, yeah because it's veracruz and then it's france yeah and then no no it's veracruz tel aviv france and then new jersey mm-hmm. um and they have uh, and he, he my, my buddy didn't even know that He's like, oh, this is the wrong movie. Like, I must have chosen something else because I, because I, I was told this is a movie about the jungle and Trungo Boom. When the guy's <laughs> checking his watch and having the conversation with his wife in the hotel room, around that point, I could definitely see someone wondering if they're watching the wrong movie. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they in the especially if you were watching it, perhaps not on a uh, an officially released DVD, <laughs> or you know. And, you're uh, seeing it by some other kind of means. And when they released this movie, they knew this was going to happen. So they had a poster. It says, Your attention, please, to dramatize the diverse backgrounds of the principal characters in Sorcerer. Two of the opening sequences were filmed in the appropriate foreign languages, with, subtitled, with subtitles in English. Other than these opening scenes, Sorcerer is an English-language film. Which is so funny. And that's like, <laughs> it's ridiculous to think about, but they also have like... I feel like you see on Reddit nowadays, like you still see this happen where it's like Puss in Boots is like only in 3D proportions of it. Or like you see the signs they put up, the warnings that people like can't just understand when a movie is slightly different from what they're expecting it to be. Yeah, but uh, it is it is funny that they had this warning sign. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the movie it has, and I think uh, the opening is reminiscent of the opening of The Exorcist, and yeah. by extension of that, I was also reminded of Uncut Gems from just a few years ago, where when a movie just kind of opens in like in a, a different country, in, in a, a different, different country, context. Jurassic Park, I was also reminded of. Though I feel like this, um, I could see a lot of influence on Spielberg movies that came after this one which is interesting with sort of the context of when this movie came out and where American cinema was at that time. To contextualize with Friedkin's career a little bit, maybe, and then we can go from there. So he had come up in the early 70s, 1971, I think, had uh, Best Picture winner and Best Director win yeah. for The French Connection, yeah. 
followed that up two years later with The Exorcist, which Best Picture nominee, you know, multiple Oscar winner, the highest grossing R-rated film of all time up until that point, I believe. Yeah, uh, they in his autobiography when he was talking with uh, his, the head of studios uh, and they were wondering about uh, how much money do you think Sorcerer is going to make? And he said, well, The Exorcist right now is, is at uh, $100 million. <laughs> Um, and so I think Sorcerer is going to be in 90 million mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, uh, <laughs> so sad to but think we can about. Go, we, we can elaborate on yeah, that we'll later. Yeah, we'll get into that. After we talk about uh, the, the, uh, the contents of this film. We yeah. talk about the aftermath. But so the movie, yeah, it was his follow-up to two massive, you know, smash successes. He yeah. had one of the hottest careers going in Hollywood as part of... Yeah, that new Hollywood generation coming out of the early 70s, along with people like Coppola, De Palma, Lucas, Spielberg, Altman, those people who were changing the form and kind of updating it in that era. Um, He's totally there as one of them. And then Sorcerer, I think, is his... It goes along with sort of like the Heaven's Gate and the New York, New York, and that all these guys, uh, Spielberg had in 1941, like... They have a few big successes, and then they have the big, huge turkey that went over budget and shooting went out of control. I think Apocalypse Now is kind of that experience, except it turned into a good movie, unlike a lot of those other ones. Yeah, and Apocalypse Now and Sorcerer were filmed at the same time, but Apocalypse Now had such a length, a lengthy post-production. It was right. released three years later, or two years later in 1979. And I think in um, I think it's in the book Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Peter Biskind is he theorizes that Friedkin really was competitive with Coppola yeah. in this stage of his career, oh, yeah. and that him going and making like the Jungle movie, like doing the lush kind of scenery that he did in this movie, was his attempt to do what Coppola was doing, going to the Philippines to make Apocalypse Now. Yeah, but I think that um, his his stubbornness to go shoot to go shoot in the real location comes from his documentary background when he used to make uh, documentaries f- uh, for television mm-hmm. and um, when he went to when he decided to go to uh, Iraq for the prologue of the exorcist when he told uh, the studios like they were like uh, no you're gonna get yourself killed like why would you want to go there we can shoot that like in the desert here like you don't need to go there but no i mean like i want to go there this is most important uh, to get the real feel of uh the real essence of what i'm trying to portray you know um i f- uh, i feel like it came from that and less than competition mm-hmm. with coppola but Maybe it also was, and it just happened that uh, they were trying to make the, the craziest movie um, on, on their ends. Because uh, they do that, because shooting in four different locations, well, they, that turned out to be more. Um, uh, just for the prologues, is, it just balloons the, the budget so much. And when you're, when, when you're a studio head and you hear about all this, it's like, oh yeah, this is going to... This is just before the... This is not even the story. Like <laughs> This isn't even the plot. Right. And you want to... 
like take the, the team like like a month there, a month there, a month there. You're you're wasting all of this money yeah. to make a movie that we're then gonna have to put cards in the lobby explaining to people that uh-huh. it's the movie that they bought a ticket for because they're gonna be so confused. After ten why. minutes, people are gonna walk out and be like, "This is not the movie. This is and, a French film." <laughs> yeah. Well, and so much of this movie is misleading. I think one thing that I really like is that yeah, French Connection. You know fantastic title whether you even see the movie whether you like the movie it's a great title the exorcist that's going to get people you know that's got sense reaction people want to see that this movie being called sorcerer having no uh fantastical kind of mystical element to it anything like that not having a sorcerer as a character anything like that (laughs) something that came up in my notes was a number of critics saying that the title was misleading and just trying to get people who enjoyed The Exorcist to go see the guy's new movie, Sorcerer, and think that it's going to be something like that. Instead, it's just the Truck Go Boom movie. And I do, I have a great quote here from Friedkin. Great only because it feels, again, like more of his hot air. Like, I don't know if I buy a word of this, but he says... The sorcerer is an evil wizard, and in this case, the wizard, the evil wizard is fate. The fact that somebody can walk out of their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something falling through the roof, and the idea that we don't really have control over our own fates, neither our births nor our deaths, it's something that has haunted me ever since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like that. So... By the end of it, he's making sense, but it gets so far from the sorcerer well, thing about it. Well, I mean, I got that when I when I when I watched the movie. No, that's the joke. I didn't get that. I feel at the, all. the fate part though. Like when he gets into that, that is what the movie's about. But what does yeah. that have to do with a sorcerer? I know because I kept trying to go back and trying to find that quote because uh, uh, freaking wanted to like freaking wanted to call this fucking movie Ball Breaker. And then he comes up with that huge explanation for sorcerer. Like, exactly. That's not, exactly. That's not like you wanted to call it ball breaker. Like, and then you come out with this uh, like really elaborate uh, explanation to sorcerer. And you, like, you were listening to Miles Davis's record, and that's what he references also in his autobiography. Is is uh, is that record? Um, uh, how uh, how he was listening to it at, at that mm-hmm. time, I guess. And um, it is it is also a. Uh, a reference to Exorcist, you know, because it's sort of the same pace and, uh, you know, it's mystical and fantastical. But uh, I, when I watched the movie for the first time, I didn't really mind because when I saw that one of the trucks was named Sorcerer, I just, oh, this is the name of the truck. That's fine. Like, I yeah. didn't need any more, any, anything more. I didn't need another explanation. I loved the fact that it was Sorcerer. I loved that it was the fact the fact that it, that it was a truck that, that didn't make it. Uh, it, it. It made everything more in, interesting, and it was a Lazaro that made it at the end. Uh, and like, why wouldn't why wouldn't it be called a Lazaro? Well, I, I don't I don't I don't know why, but um, but uh, I didn't have a problem with the, yeah. with the title itself. Like he had to explain it. <laughs> yeah, he really he shows his hand too much. He dog yeah. protests too much. But I think it's funny. For one thing, if one of the trucks had like a big sorcerer on the side, like sometimes you see those vans with like a Viking woman or whatever painted on the side of it. On the side of it, they had Pedigo, which means which means danger. Yeah. They had danger uh, written on the side of it, and, and no one got that because in the film you see the trucks going and like sometimes they pass villages and there's uh, these uh, these natives uh, who are running. Uh, beside the truck and one of them the man who he runs and then the and then the the driver is just like get out of the way like get out get out because if he jumps on the truck and it starts like fucking around everything's gonna explode Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so having written danger on the side didn't do anything. Uh, but uh, interesting way that you were talking about having a sorcerer uh, painted on the side because uh, the sorcerer truck has um, a demon uh, drawn on it uh, with chalk or something. And that was uh, John Box, who is the production designer on this film, who had uh, uh, drawn uh, just a sketch of a, of a demon to show as the first image of this film. Because the first image of the, of the film is a rock statue face of a some sort of, I don't know, animal or like demon, as you can say, since uh, his last film was, uh, was uh, The Exorcist. So he wanted to have this sort of uh, demon shape uh, as the first image and it looked too much like the demon in uh, the Iraq prologue of the exorcist mm -hmm. the Pazuzu uh, statue and he didn't want it uh, so they had so they made this face instead but they draw they, they had drawn they drew the, uh, the, the that sketch of uh, the, the three-legged demon yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the truck on the sorcerer truck um, and it's, it, it, it goes by really quickly. It's there for maybe like 16 frames. Once it's once the sorcerer truck leaves after 15 minutes, uh, because the, the two trucks there they have to be separated. Right. One goes off, and the one is too. If one goes off and the other one is too near, then both of them go off. So, um, so when once they leave, you have just like a quick glimpse of that sketch, and like oh shit, like that's like a direct reference to The Exorcist. You know, so it's very interesting. Since you said Pazuzu, I want to get a chance to say it as well. It's a fun word to put on a podcast. It is. It is. I was playing a video game the other day, and one of the characters that's there is Pazuzu, and I was, I was like, "Oh, that's nice." So I kept it. I kept the, the character, and then <laughs> when I got into in, into the in, into the researching this film, uh, I it immediately stood out to me, and I watched The Exorcist. <laughs> Um, and I'm also, I'm just thinking about if this movie had come out and been called Ball Breaker and it had like an ACDC soundtrack instead of the, uh, Tangerine Dream music. It would not have worked. Well, it might've worked for me. I think that's, that's kind of fun. Uh, the Tangerine Dream music, I think is a huge part of the success of this movie. And you had said when we were talking about doing the episode to watch it wherever I could that had the best sound. This uh, this score is quite something in this movie, and I think you definitely can see, even though it's not the first synth score of this style, it's definitely one of the early ones that kind of, I think, sets a template that you see a lot in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's out there. It definitely is. Uh, Friedkin had met uh, with the band when he was touring uh, The Exorcist and then uh, he went to a show it was like a three hour show in a, in a church or something and it was pitch black the only thing that was illuminating the room were their electronic instruments you know and uh, he jokes around that um, it, it, the, the place was filled with uh, <laughs> the place was filled with with uh, uh, high teenagers or drugged up teenagers uh, and he had sent them he had sent them the script of sorcerer he said please write <laughs> please write music for this and gave him a gist of what his artistic uh uh i said the i don't know what it is in english is uh, just his vision vision for the statement film. yeah yeah artist statement and uh, he came up uh they, and then they sent him uh after like a year or something they sent him a, a two hour long uh, a two hour long version of just music just 
and uh, he was and shooting he was, at that point. He was still filming the Jerusalem was, sequence. No, yeah. no, <laughs> he was still filming at yeah. that point, and uh, and uh, it, it it gave them fuel uh, to to finish, and it definitely helped when they were editing. Um, and uh, I was listening to it on the way over here, actually. Uh, I love, I just love the uh, the names of the songs. Oh, I didn't, uh, I didn't look into those. Like. Also, Friedkin said, I don't want a song that's called Sorcerer. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, buddy. Uh, so the first song is like main title, Sorcerer uh, soundtrack. Uh, you have Search. So that's when uh, the uh, the Israeli police is looking for mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, uh, the, the terrorists in, in the town. And you have the, the, the song Search and then The Call, uh, Creation, Vengeance, The Journey. Grind, Rainforest, Abyss, The Mountain Road, Impressions of Sorcerer, and then this last song, Betrayal. Betrayal. Yeah, it, 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 it resumes the entire film. It, it, it's a great soundtrack. It's really scary. <laughs> yeah, and like Tangerine Dream, this was, I feel like, one of the first soundtracks that they did. Definitely not the last, though, because they would go on. They would do Thief for Michael Mann, as well as The Keep, which the opening of The Keep, uh, I watched that in the fall, is totally just ripping off Sorcerer. I I am not too familiar with their discography and their music, but I was listening to it. I was listening to their music this week, and uh, uh, one song I thought it was a part of the Sorcerer soundtrack, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. It was off an album from 1985, and it oh, was yeah. it was almost the same. Yeah, well, they've got. I, <laughs> I, I was looking this up. I don't have the figures in front of me, but I think they've got 108 studio albums and then like 37 soundtracks. So you can only play synths like so, you know, so many like different sort of like looping, like pulsating beats. It, it, it's probably not even in there. Uh, they're not. They're not aware of it. You know, it's yeah. just. It's just they're, they're making music. Oh, and that, uh, that was a song that we made like uh, 10 years ago. And you or we put, we oh, put okay, this on whatever. a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, this was on the Blade Runner soundtrack and we forgot. So we then brought it back and put it on the, you know, whatever else. Um, yeah, Tangerine Dream I do like, though. They, they kind of, their studio albums I was listening to when I was in university a lot is like study music and kind of like that and a lot of craft work kind of fits in that vein as well. It felt like craft work, uh without any lyrics without any singing yeah because you know i like craft work but once they start singing i'm just kind of like oh no like <laughs> shut up like it doesn't even work uh and oh, tangerine that's dream, it, well it's <laughs> a little debatable on that but, it uh, is um but it's not a musical it's not a musical podcast no um but uh I, that's why the, the tangerine dream uh, really works and it also, I think it captures the energy of a lot of what John Carpenter was doing right in this like same era with those kind of like horror, those like very chilly synth soundtracks that have this kind of like cold pulsating distance to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we do want to get into the prologue sequences of this movie and the way that we get the introductions of these four characters. Yeah. And we can also talk about their, uh, their, their casting too, because yeah. uh, it, it gets, um, because that's when we're first introduced to them, and you know the casting of this film was quite, quite a roller coaster ride. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So the first of these four prologue sequences it begins in Veracruz, Mexico. Yeah, so that's when we're introduced to uh, Nilo, uh, the character Nilo, uh, portrayed by Francisco Rabal, who is uh, uh, the uh, the the character of um, like the 
Mexican hitman, if you will. And uh, he, that actor was supposed to be playing the main evil guy in the French Connection. Okay, yes. And what happened was uh, uh, his associate, a freaking associate producer or casting director, I forgot who, called the wrong guy to cast uh, as that uh, that character it's the guy with the goatee who passes by in the metro and says bye bye you know right, he's, okay, he's the yeah. main evil guy charnier i think he's called he's called um and because uh, he, he 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 was in a louis Buñuel film so freaking told him i want the guy in, in the louis Buñuel film and he's like okay i got him i got him i know who he is he called him up he went he, he came to the uh <laughs> and then he went to the uh to the airport and freaking was the one to to meet him and And Friedkin was like, oh, you were in the Louis Buñuel films? Like, yeah, yeah, I was. And he was, but yeah. he was just not the right guy. And uh, Not dissimilar to the premise of the uh, Steve Martin, Queen Latifah comedy, bringing down the house. <laughs> where They have to fake it. So this other guy shows up and, and you know, he wasn't, uh, Friedkin wasn't uh, that loud mouth that he is today. So he, he just sort of let it go and... Uh, called up uh, his associates like you sent me the wrong guy this is not the right guy i was like oh shit i'm sorry but like this guy was it was super ecstatic to be in the film and in the end he ended up being in the film so you know it, it worked out for him but francisco rabada was the one that he wanted uh, in the first place and uh, the veracruz prologue was not in the original script it was uh, it was during a hiatus between two shooting locations and they had four days in veracruz and they shot that prologue in four days i mean it's three shots like it's it starts off with the beautiful city with everyone down uh, uh, in the in that central in that square area filmed from the the window of a, of a hotel room it, it dollies back and then you see uh just some character by by a table like uh, pouring himself a drink and then you have francisco rabal's character like pop out and shoot him in the face. You don't see any of the shooting, but uh, uh, <laughs> he shoots. It starts him. with a bang, It's, literally. It does. It starts. It starts uh, with a bang, definitely. And then he comes down the elevator, and the elevator is super noisy. It just goes like back, 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 and that's how he got the idea of uh, of writing a, the, the the prologue for this because he said, "Oh, this is like so weird. Like I love the fact that this." This, uh, this guy is trying to be super discreet with his murder, but you have this elevator go down and you create a huge racket. <laughs> well, the, the sound is the only uh, Oscar nomination that this movie got when it came out. And I would say... <clears throat> oh, yeah? Deservedly. So, yeah, not for the score, but for the sound design. Okay. Oh, interesting. It makes sense. Yeah. It's a, it's the, very, it's the shortest uh, prologue, so yeah. there's not too much to say about it. Uh, like, there's three shots. <laughs> there's, like, maybe four cuts. <laughs> yeah, the Jerusalem prologue is the one that stood out to me and the one I was reminded a little bit of um, like again in addition to The Exorcist I thought a little bit of Argo from you know like a decade ago or whatever but of the yeah sort of documentary cinema verite style of really kinetic filmmaking and like it doesn't feel like Hollywood big budget glamorous it feels dirty and down there on the streets with the characters and uncoordinated and it's unpredictable beautiful. and it is it's, it's a great. great sequence it's a great sequence the characters are amazing they have such a they have such nice faces <laughs> like and I, th i think that's really like that was um <clears throat> that I, i might have um if i had a little more time revisited french connection or exorcist i probably will in the editing of this episode 
But thinking about those movies and then watching, yeah, that uh, Jerusalem prologue sequence, that's what really stood out to me is like the Friedkin touch is that, yeah, documentary realism and sort of, and he talks about that a lot in the interviews as well. Like that's definitely a deliberate part of his presentation. Yeah. So you have like uh, the character uh, of, uh, his, his name is Kasim. And once he ends up in uh, uh, South America, his name becomes Martinez because they all have they all have a Latino name. Yeah, (laughs) Um, and is portrayed by Amidu. Amidu was the only actor to play this. Was the only actor considered uh, in casting. The the other the other um, actors had other uh, the, the other sorry the. The other roles had other considerations. All second choices, yes. Yeah. But uh, because they had one condition, like I want to, I want to be second to Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. And once he pulled out, and I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so you have these guys who are in, Jeru- in Jerusalem, and they. Uh, are essentially they're terrorists and they plant a bomb near a bank or something and then it explodes they leave and uh they go to their little hideout and then they sort of embrace each other like this is it like we need to leave now and they all like run away but uh the only one who gets away is Kasim, and it leaves with his co-patriot uh being arrested and Kasim is in the crowd just sort of blending in you know and he sees him and you know like this is the end like I have to like uh, I have to escape now and uh, it's uh, it's quite a it's, it, it it is one of the sadder uh, prologues because this guy had a he had a whole crew and he just sort of let them go and or, and, or most of them died uh, in the in the gunfight um, and what's also interesting and goes back to Friedkin's obsession with documentaries and reality and documentary feel is um, once they shot the explos- the explosion scene, which did break some windows, like it was a real explosion, a two blocks... A, a good explosion. There's, was, a, there's some good It was a good explosion. explosion in this movie. <laughs> yeah. When truck go boom... When it go like, boom. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it boom. When tree go boom... <laughs> Oh, yeah. A lot of things go boom. There's a lot of boom. There's little, there's small booms too, but uh, so uh, the aftermath, <laughs> the after, aftermath of the explosion, uh, is all it, it's all real because two 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 blocks from the film set there was a real terrorist attack and there was a real explosion and there were real military uh, personnel that were deployed there to see what's up and once they heard that explosion they just booked it to that place so once you see like people running and the camera is really shaking that's a real that's a real that's that, that's the real explosion that's mm-hmm. not even you you see the 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 bank shot where it explodes that's not real but the aftermath it's all real and that's the interesting thing that not to derail the conversation too much with this uh, philosophical argument but when you see movies and you see like perhaps it's set in New York City or something like that and a character is walking down the street amongst a crowd of you know, dozens of other people and none of those people know they're in a movie. They don't know that they're being filmed. They're not acting. Is that cinema? Is that documentary? It's not, yeah. no one else. In this, you're, yeah. You're getting, you're getting people's real reactions and it's not a stage situation. Then you put it in the movie contextualized with all this other adults playing pretend and being characters. 
it is it uh it you can see that there's the blend of the two in this movie yeah Mm -hmm. definitely and then after this prologue you're transported to beautiful new jersey (laughs) and this is an interesting one this is the one with uh roy share um in um Roy Scheider, sorry. Uh, this is the one with uh, Roy Scheider as as a driver for the mob, for the Irish mob, pretty much. And they, and this is, oh man, this kind of, this is a very, per, I think this is a, the, like the most personal prologue out, out of all of them because because Freakin had people in in that in that uh, cast um, that were actually. Uh, members of the mob. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the leadoff man, the guy who rides shotgun with with Roy, with uh, well, Roy. Actually, it's uh, it's Scanlon or yeah. Dominguez. Once he gets to South America, uh, the guy who rides shotgun with him and who talks a lot. His name is Jerry, and uh, he has connections with the Irish mob. And that whole story of stealing um, money from a parish, from a from a church during a during a during a wedding is one of his stories you know that he actually did like this is a <laughs> this is a, a theft that he actually committed and he told freaking and freaking loved it and was like well, yeah, let's write it in yeah this is great well one of the things <laughs> i had in my notes was that uh, freakin flew in from new york uh someone to help with the production of this movie flew in an arsonist by the name of marvin the torch yeah, and so Marvin the Torch worked on this movie. I know, like I was going to mention it also the fact that he works with such shady characters, and even in the French Connection, he also had. I think Jerry also worked on that, uh, and other other shady characters. But uh, it's a weird mix. Like I can't really imagine him hanging out with all those guys. <laughs> well, he um, <clears throat> he speaks in interviews, you know, recently about being someone who regrets the degree to which he endangered his actors and crews. And, you know, that has been a thing that's had a reckoning in Hollywood in a few different ways, <clears throat> like over the last few years. But he's someone who, like, famously slapped the priest on the set of The Exorcist. He's been known to be sort of a tantrum kind of guy. He fired my coworker. He fired. Yeah, he yeah, he, uh, he he passive aggressively made comments about footage being out of focus. This guy's a maniac. Yeah, he's a maniac. Um, but he, yeah, like this movie. Well, and something that um, I found interesting. This is the follow up. He had his two big successes, and then he envisioned this as like a two and a half million dollar side project, like quick thing. And then it ballooned into like the twenty million dollar production that it ended up being, or you know whatever the figures are. Yeah, it is. That's whatever, the whatever they're known to be, uh, and then it was a big flop when it came out. Um, it's funny he on his appearance on the movies that made me podcast in like twenty nineteen or so. He was absolutely railing against, you know, the filmmakers these days. They go out, they take two years to make a movie. Any jackass with a camera can make a watchable movie in two years. Look at Michael Curtiz making, you know, half a dozen movies a year. Look at Raul Walsh. Look at uh, Vincent Minnelli. He's like riffing on all those guys. 
and saying that like it's hack shit to take forever to make a movie but then sorcerer was the result of a four-year effort and then Jesus. then they came out and no one liked it so like i think he might be self-conscious about that on a level yeah i think he is but this movie it has less of the bloat which i think i should stress that like i compared it to 1941 and heaven's gate and all these like kind of shitty movies that are overdone this movie is a taut two hours it has 25 minutes of incomprehensible confusion at the beginning of it but it is like it's the short truck go boom movie it doesn't really have um like a ton of fat on it that doesn't come into con like come into focus and make sense as the movie goes on it's not a rambling, incoherent thing like a lot of those other cocaine 70s movies are. And Friedkin, to hear him talk, wasn't one of those crazy cokehead 70s no. directors. He was a really straight down the line. Apparently only in his autobiography, he got drunk two times. He's been drunk two times? Interesting. <laughs> I don't believe him. <laughs> Fuck, he could stand to loosen up a little. Like, maybe, maybe he's... Uh, he's, he's Have too... a drink, Jesus. Yeah. Don't fire my coworker. Don't slap your coworkers. Yeah. Um, you know he slapped uh, a participant in his first film. Is that right? In the People versus Paul Crump. I didn't know. He that. slapped Paul Crump, the uh, the guy who was uh, sentenced to death, who was he, he who he was trying to like get out of jail because he believed his story. Uh, he 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 filmed him and he asked him to to just retell his story and everything, and then he didn't have uh, that emotion that. He, was looking for so he just took him aside and said paul do you love me he's like yes i love you say it say it louder do you love me he's like yes and then he slapped him and he's like, okay and then he sits him down he's like okay do it again and action yeah <laughs> and then and then what happened was it was the perfect take and then that's the take i took and he was so amazing i was like yeah well, you just slapped him like he was frazzled <laughs> Reeling it back to the New Jersey prologue. Right, right. Scanlan is part of the Irish mob and they want to hit uh, this Italian parish, this Catholic church, because on the, on the, on the, uh, in the basement, all the priests are there counting money from all the donations. And this is one of the crimes that uh, uh, Jerry, uh, <laughs> the leadoff man in the film, uh, that uh, he actually did some years before uh so they want to go there steal the money and then and then get out and you have a little a little sneak peek of uh, uh the wedding and the ceremonies and everything and then you see a close-up of the bride and she's got one yeah. huge shiner like yeah. she's got she just got slapped the night before mm-hmm. and then she's getting married to some guy she probably doesn't even like some complete good and that's there's no other context than that like there's no reason to have this is like why would you why would you just have a close-up of a of a woman with a black eye like what are you trying to say about what are you trying to say about this guy? What are you trying to say about this parish? What are you trying to say about like Italian Americans? And then you just go downstairs and you have these Irish guys stealing money from these Italian guys. And uh, and Jerry just shoots one of them. And that guy happens to be the brother of the head of the fucking Italian mafia. And uh, oh my goodness. And uh, they escape, you know, uh, they have a little... They have like a little disagreement in the car, like the four guys, and and uh, you know Roy's uh, character Scanlon's just driving, and one of the guy in the back who's actually like, was an IRA uh, member and you know, part of that group, that whole thing. Anyway, just like, this great cast, great mm-hmm. cast, just points his gun at 
the leadoff man that's sitting shotgun and Roy just looks back and the car just hits a truck and then it flips over and uh, and Roy just you know he just escapes narrowly with his life he's the only survivor and during that whole prologue he's wearing a fake nose because Roy's nose is busted like he has a broken nose so to freaking it didn't really make much sense to show a broken nose right away so they had a prosthetic nose made during the entire uh theft scene and you can see it like it's totally fake it's huge it's huge and once he got once he like crawls out of the car of the burning car uh his real nose you know appears and it's just a whole bunch of blood but it works like it looks super bad <laughs> it, it, yeah and uh reminiscent of chinatown any yeah. any movie i i was talking about this with someone like an election is another movie like this any movie where like partway through someone gets a bad injury that they then have to carry with them for the rest of the movie and they have like some kind of broken nose or a broken like a cast or something I enjoy that always in movies. I think that's such a good way to add depth to a character. Yeah. And uh, one, so he escapes narrowly with his life and then meets up with this guy, I guess. And then that guy, um, he is, uh, in my notes, I have him <laughs> as traitor. Yeah. <laughs> Randy uh, Jurgensen, the actor. And, uh, well, not the actor. He's actually an ex-cop. And he's the character that, um, he's the man that, the main character in Cruising is based off of. He's the mm. one who went under, uh, in the uh, uh, underground uh, gay S&M world uh, in New York trying to find that killer. Uh, everything yeah, is was based. turned crazy by it. Yeah, yeah and he didn't go too it. much in details of what he did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's all classified, I guess. Um, so Ego meets him and, uh, and then he, um, he, he, arranges, he arranges a deal so Scanlon can leave the country and, you know, kind of hide out with yeah with with no um yeah you don't have much say in the matter kind of exactly like if you want uh if you want to stay if you want to explain it to the head of the italian mob like go ahead but uh you know this is your only option yeah uh, all these characters have ultimatums um and oh i don't think we went to uh there was also the the paris oh we uh, didn't say the okay well maybe you can uh squeeze it in there (laughs) that's we have the sort of secret agent or sort of like spy type guy he's talking with his wife that was again i was reminded a bit of the beginning of marathon man and the character that roy Scheider plays in that movie actually which is like the middle-aged like dad looking james bond like the undercover agent who's not like a suave sophisticated guy just like a fucking old dude um and i think that's the character um that we're introduced to in this one it was originally offered to uh jean paul belmondo from breathless it's, uh you know french uh film star of, like many decades and recently oh, yeah, in this film i think so oh, yeah he was offered for that but then also um i Mar- didn't get marcello I... mastriani whatever the guy from uh, eight and a half was also offered one of these roles and those he was were offered guys. nilo he was offered yeah. he was offered the the uh, the hitman um but uh, and then I, those are guys who didn't want to not be in a Steve McQueen movie. They didn't want to be second banana to Roy Scheider. Actually, Mastrioni. What happened was that he had a difficult custody battle for his daughter with his ex-wife, mm. and he and he didn't want to leave 
the country because he couldn't have custody of his of his daughter when he when he was shooting in the Dominican Republic. Um, but it was Lino Ventura, the actor, yes. the French actor, who really wanted to be the second to Steve McQueen, and then didn't work out. But I don't think it would have worked out with if he stayed. It would have it wouldn't have worked out with Roy Scheider because they have the same nose, they they have the same face. It would have been weird. And uh, um, Bruno Kramer, who ended up playing uh, Victor Manson or Serrano, uh, I think he works better. He has more, he's more believable, I guess. He has scars too on his face. Yeah. He has interesting, he has interesting teeth. It's all they're all crazy looking. But uh, that, that's also a really good, uh, that's also a really good um, a prologue. Uh, he plays a some sort of banker who embezzles money and has to escape because it was it was discovered that he stole a whole bunch of money uh his brother-in-law shoots himself and he like he leaves his wife at a restaurant and right. he leaves his wife at a restaurant he doesn't tell her that he's leaving where he's going he just looks at her uh and then leaves and just sorts of runs away in the street and He, that's the last shot you see of him is him running away in the street and then he just appears <laughs> he just appears in, the, in, the, in South America he one, of, one of cinema's great Irish goodbyes of all like, time there is no I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the airport and I'm, I'm driving a car like if he would have driven a car it would have made more sense or it would not have been uh, as funny because it was it was unintentionally funny <laughs> it is it's funny that it's like the prologue that shows you so much context that yeah. makes no sense and then the stuff that you like the in-between stuff is like that's what you're gonna skip um and yeah so we end up with these four characters they're in south america yeah like there's a scene between some police and roy shatter where they're calling him a filthy gringo and like they know They under they get what's going on. These cops, they, these they, cops aren't clueless. They It's all like, have fake identities. That's yeah. why they have these 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 names. These uh, uh, they they have these fake names uh, just to fit in. But like yeah. they don't speak Spanish. Most of them don't don't. So uh, they just want to you know get some money out of them. I guess. <clears throat> As we get introduced to the premise of this, the scene where the guy who's gonna like offload this TNT or this dynamite, he goes and checks it out. And he sees that it's dripping and it gets on his hands and he does the slow back away. And it's again, it's like the, that a three-year-old can understand. It's like the way he looks at his hand, the reaction he has and the way he holds himself as he walks out. You understand bad stuff, not good. Don't touch bad stuff. Yeah, it's dripping. And it's like, dripping. If, it had drip, if it had dripped on the, in the, on the box, the whole thing would have blew. Like it didn't make any sense to But have it's like, this whole... It, I mean, it, it, it was just to make the audience understand that it was dangerous. But well, and it's like it's it like a Looney Tunes crazy. gag or like something out of Airplane because he like backs off with it on his fingers. And it's like dripping off and he like lets it drip off the fingers and explodes when it hits. He like throws a little explosion he, on he the throws, ground. He, he, he flicks his hand and then he goes, pop, 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 pop. Like those things you'd buy at the exhibition yeah. that like look like little sperms that you throw down <laughs> and they explode. It, I, I feel like it, well, it was... It, It was probably a nod to the Clouseau film because uh, that that character uh, in in this film was uh, it's actually more of the foreman or the guy who works for for the company and not the TNT guy. Right. The TNT guy is the one who puts his hand in and sorcerer. But um, in Clouseau's film, he he ha he invites all the volunteers in his office. He has a little like Pyrex jar or like a measuring cup full of <laughs> with like a 
the, a tablespoon of nitroglycerin and then he drops it on the ground or not drops it he, he just makes a makes a drip on the ground and then it, it just goes boom and everyone is super like surprised like oh my god like what is going on like what's happening maybe it was a nod to that but uh um it, it felt a bit campy in Tuzo's film that was a lot better I felt um and then yeah so this this unstable dynamite has to be moved has to be <clears throat> transported offloaded they put out a call that it's what 8000 pesos which I'm not a, I'm not a currency uh and back then I'm not a banker and what yeah. peso is it like is it like the Cuban but, um, peso is it the like... yeah so I'm not in, I'm not incredibly clear but I think the movie wants you to to understand that it's uh pretty good payday it's not it's not it's not, it's not money to retire off of. it's money to leave this place it's, it's money a, to leave this hellhole it's a good injection of like cash which yeah. this came up on the show it's something i always think back to now uh when vish Khanna was on the show talking about how many comedies in the 90s revolved around we need to get twenty thousand dollars by the end of the month it's like it's not that much it's not money. not that much money, man. It's like, <laughs> you could like... You can se- do it. If you had a new car, you could sell your new car, mate. Or like, it's like... Just like rob one person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's really not you that to hard. Rob a bank. It's just a super small, like, low barrier thing. But it's like, and we need to buy next Friday? Like, <laughs> those kind of like, it's only stakes that are just sort of like all relative. But uh, when when you work one day and you get like a dollar, like... This is when you're just cooling so your heels more. in some like hellhole, like small, like jungle town. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks beautiful. There's beautiful um, scenic locations in this movie. And yeah, like people like helicopter uh, shots. Yeah, like but Robert Mitchum was one of the people who didn't want to do this movie because he said they could film this outside of his house. He yeah. said, so I can. Yeah, you can film. You can film me like, like falling out, falling out of my truck, truck out, like, as he was heavily drinking. Yeah. <laughs> with freaking uh oh my god i don't think it would have worked with him uh, i love robert Mitchum, but i don't i don't think it would i think he's a little too i think this is a perfect cast even though uh this it wasn't the first choice it works like i like the fact that i didn't i never seen most of these guys mm-hmm. yeah that's um, the thing it's it's not like i said yeah it's not a movie where the star power overpowers the movie mm-hmm. and it turns into like um something where you're distracted and it's like oh well of course like Roy Scheider is going to save the day or mm-hmm. like anything like that oh I don't think we explained why they need to move the TNT in the first oh, place sure yeah so they want to move this TNT because they're uh in that in that country you know they exploit oil and there's an oil um there's an oil refinery not a refinery but uh it's a it's a oil well oil well and uh there's been an explosion and the only way to put out that fire is to strategically uh, put TNT around the site, detonate it simultaneously, and then it just like blows out the candle and and uh, there's no spark, there's no more fire. So then you just have to deal with leaking oil, you know. So that's why they have to move the TNT, and there's no more TNT in the in the area. They can't move it by helicopter. It's too much vibration, uh, and the only way that they can put out the fire is to move this really unstable nitroglycerin through the 218 miles that separates the TNT depot to the fire, to the raging fire. And then that's the third act of this film. It kind of slowly comes together, building towards this. You're kind of in the second act before the plot plot has really kicked into it. It's still all prologue and kind of setting things up. And then, yeah, the third act is the... um, 
transportation and the perils involved in that and some really gripping uh, set to that Tangerine Dream score. Really tense sequences, which again, like, I was reminded of I was getting Jurassic Park vibes in the scene where the guy's got the TNT on his hand. That reminded me of Jurassic Park. I also thought of um, Steven Spielberg, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with the uh, uh, rope bridge at the end of that movie. Like, mm-hmm. this feels like one of those movies that it's got that Velvet Underground thing that, like, not so many people saw it, but everyone who saw it ripped it off in something that they did later. So, like... Yeah, it's kind of like that uh, Jolivsky's Dune book. Right, uh, yeah. That was just, like, laying around on a, on, on a coffee table at, uh, uh, at, um, at a big Hollywood studio, and then people just went through it, and, oh, my God, like, I'm going to use this and this and this and then it, all that stuff ended up in star wars or other yeah. science fiction or or alien or for that matter um uh, it, it had a, like a indirect influence on a lot of films um and i think the um two notes that i have here that go together a premise like this feels totally possible as soon as you consider greed that was the one note that i had and then later on i said greed hits up against nature which has no price and that that's sort of what this movie is or that was sort of what i was getting from it watching it yesterday that like these guys are all victims of circumstance they're all like we were saying like through decisions good and bad through things that have happened to you through this and that this is the situation you find yourself in this is your opportunity to get out of it is this the chance you're going to take? Is this the risk? Is it going to pay off with the reward? And then it's going up against, yeah, like such brute volatility of it's not um, nature in the form of a big storm that's going to wipe you out or a shark that's going to eat you. But it is like if the wind blows a tree branch against the side of the truck, then the truck explodes, truck go boom. It's so much about how you're just at the whims of the environment around you of the sorcerer one might say of uh of nature and i think we also get that a bit in just how hellish the jungle landscape can be and when you have roy scheider like falling around in the water getting dirty like no one wants to do that (laughs) there are great like there are great set pieces just to, to bring your point, uh, just to um, to um, strengthen your point, actually, uh, the uh, just the, the 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 bridge scene yeah. that was held to film, you know, because essentially the two trucks they end up in front of this old uh, suspension bridge made out of wood and rope, uh, and it's raining. <laughs> the kind of bridge that you that's only made to then fall down yeah very soon after it, it just looks like a trap yeah and then you can't really go back because the shot where the, tr- the bridge is introduced you just see the truck go down this really really steep uh muddy hill and then the truck gets down somehow and then the camera pans and you see that bridge and the storm around it and it's just 
oh my god like they have to get across and both of them like oh, we can't go across we took the wrong road like oh you can't go back yeah like, you have so to go across <laughs> you gotta go across too bad too bad exactly so like originally that scene was supposed to be filmed in the dominican republic they built the bridge for like a million dollars took like three months to build and then uh, across the river uh, that was sure to have water running underneath uh, they were they were told that for sure there's going to be water for sure there's going to be water and then, and then when it came time to shoot there was no more water the river had just you know it just dried up they couldn't shoot there anymore uh, so what happened was that they sent a team to go scout somewhere else and they went to uh, to Stipec in Mexico in the Oaxaca region so it's funny that I discovered this this film in the same region where one of the biggest uh, set pieces of, the, of that film was was you know was shot. Does it look the same? Can you see, can you recognize it to see it sort of or? Uh, not really. No. I think it it fits. Uh, I mean everything. Uh, I'm guessing. Hmm, if it looks the same, it's so distorted in the film because it's raining. And when sure. I was there, it wasn't raining. It was the dry season. It was it was winter, and mm. you know the the the, the rains are all, there only during summer. So they went, so so they scouted into into Stipec, and they rebuilt the bridge. You know, they wrapped it up, and it was not as long to, to build. You know, it was like maybe a month. <laughs> Gee, that's, that's still really long to rebuild it across the river. And in that time, that's when they shot the the prologue in Veracruz. And when they when they came to uh, to Stipec to shoot it, the river was going down again. <laughs> So there, there was water missing. So not fucking again. <laughs> there was supposed to be like twelve feet of water, and now there's like two feet of water. But you know, if there would have been twelve feet of water, like people, I think a lot of people would have died shooting it, shooting it. You know. Yeah, Friedkin um, seemed happy that people hadn't died. In an interview that I saw, he was like, "Yeah, because you're not in jail." He's like you're revisiting. Jail. He's like revisiting the movie. Yeah, it's like I'm glad that no one got hurt. It's it's lucky that no one got hurt. Is yeah, like kind of what he the was saying. Put them in that shit situation so then they instead of like packing up and going somewhere else which like was an option but i'm guessing at that point just you just have to you just have to play with the with the cards that you've been dealt yeah and uh so so they set up some pumps they set up some fake rain towers uh and they just pumped water from from wherever they could down the river up river wherever they could uh, so they added rain to the scene because it was not supposed to be rain originally. It was meant to hide the lack of current underneath. Mm-hmm. And if you when you watch the scene and you look, you can see that it's not that much current. Like it's a crazy, it's a crazy storm, but the water is right. just sort of stagnant or barely moving. Um, uh, but that's only if you know if you if you watch for the first time. I'm guessing like oh like. You get taken up in the storm pretty much. It it gets um, when this movie really hellish. When it gets cooking, it does get cooking, and you're yeah. you're really um, like on the edge of your seat by because like the music is sparing in the beginning of the movie, like and especially in that Jerusalem prologue and stuff. Like there's no score for big chunks of the start of the movie. And oh, then, it's in, it's in the Jerusalem prologue, but not in the rest. Not not too much in the rest. Right. But like it, it but it's sparing at the beginning yeah. and then you get so much more of it yeah, towards definitely. the end and it really does like work you up into that frenzy. Um 
I was reminded a bit of uh, Aguirre, the Werner Herzog movie with uh, Klaus Kinski, just about like kind of like going up river, going insane in the jungle. It was like another one of those movies. I saw Aaron Fitzcarraldo also. Fitzcarraldo, yeah. Yeah, I want to build a, what, what, what he wants to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle, in yeah. the Brazilian jungle. <laughs> one of the yeah, like so, but again, like. Um, to talk about why this movie didn't perform a note that i had it's got the bloat and hubris of a late 70s new hollywood movie and it came out a month after star wars starring the guy from jaws so like <clears throat> i think this movie was it wasn't out of step it was just like just a moment too late or it was just like you know on the cusp of movies going away from being ambiguous and gray and having bummer endings and kind of cynical about politics and the world that we live in to being stuff like rocky and superman and spielberg movies and kind of feel good star wars popcorn entertainment and it makes sense like to see the first 25 minutes of this and imagine seeing it a month after star wars it makes sense that this movie wouldn't have done well. It's not a... It's a very nihilistic view of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't end well. And uh, freaking he attributes his early successes to chance, you know? He's like, if the French Connection had released a month earlier or a month later or a year or something, uh, it would not have won the Oscar. It would not have been that successful. Same thing with The Exorcist. Uh, he was lucky to not get an X rating on that, you know, and it was just because it's just because the MPAA felt that it was a film that everyone needed to see. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe because they were Catholic and it, yeah. and it and it dealt in the same waters, you know. Um, it speaks to the vested interests of the censors to have you like, Catholic and fearful. <laughs> kind of like my uh, teachers wanting us to see the Passion of the Christ and mm-hmm. just showing us in like every every chance they got to throw it on screen oh we're gonna watch passion of the christ today. oh man like are you sure like this is very important this is what happened to jesus aren't you ready to invest in your faith by yeah. watching this violent <laughs> so, torture porn i'm guessing it was the same way with the exorcist like don't don't be uh, don't yeah. be like don't dabble in evil kids uh, the head of paramount charles bluthorn was was actually um instrumental in choosing the location of the film mm-hmm. because he owned uh, sugar cane fields in the Dominican Republic so they're, they're so he's like literally like one of the characters in the movie he is, like well, one, he one, is of, a character. one of those guys he's yeah. in the poster right, uh, he, I heard he's, about he's that he's in one of the posters uh, in the office of the, the uh, of the oil uh, company guys uh, he's just right behind him when he's explaining something to right. the foreman like oh it's your problem you need to like uh, blow this fire out or whatever and what picture behind him is uh, Charles Bluthorn but just the fact that uh, the, the the exact thing just the, the thing that the film is critiquing is the is what made possible to film this film you know mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it yeah it, it's, it's it's the product of the of the environment it criticizes and like it's uh but that's the thing that you get in 70s film which you get less now which is like it is it's an unvarnished look at the actual world that we live in and the people who control it and the ways that people are put into these kinds of circumstances again like it's this movie is a 
crazy premise and it's like it's high um stakes the way these guys mm-hmm. get into their circumstances but like they're in this like backed into a corner truck go boom position because of they need money because of the circumstances like it is it's just a capitalist you know it's blue collar crime really what they're doing here yeah typically on the show i like to look at the box office information when the movies come out and investigate for a movie from 1977 the box office mojo was not as uh um full of information as it normally is but i do know that yeah june 24th 1977 was the opening this was a big summer movie this was supposed to be big summer release came out a month after the original star wars and actually I believe the trailer was attached to it and if it was the editor of Sorcerer or something like that someone on the crew went to go see Star Wars just saw to see it, the trailer saw it with Sorcerer yeah. with the trailer before and then just knew like this is going to make our movie look like just We're a fucked. chicken shit yeah like <laughs> this is it's not going to fly it's, it's like being a stand up comic and going after Dave Chappelle exactly right? after yeah. someone who kills and then you go up and you're like knock knock like with a horrible Exa- joke. exactly gets, yeah it's just completely outdated but it was great like five years ago it was funny working it was now funny right until that other guy yeah, yeah. exactly so uh, on a twenty-one million dollar budget, because I think that's what it was, right? Yeah. Which, which in today's money is like hundred eighty million or something. To it's to crazy. to have it escalate like tenfold from the original budget, yeah, that's that it, is not good. And it was it was too much money for one studio, so it was Universal and Paramount who collaborated on this, and it would not have happened if it was just a smaller film. Like it would not have happened. You just need more money. And then Friedkin was speaking in an interview that I saw about how the rights issues with this movie and the fact that it has been in and out of availability. At a certain point, it was because uh, yeah, Fox and Paramount, after decades of making money and having you know rights over it and practicing rights over it, came to a point where neither studio knew who owned it anymore and then weren't doing anything with it at all because they couldn't prove that they owned it. And then Friedkin had to sue the studios to get the film released and able to be put back into circulation. Yeah, the um, there was a, a few lawsuits um, because since the film didn't perform in the U.S., the film came out after Star Wars. It lasted a week at the Hollywood uh, Chinese Theater, and then they brought after it bombed. They just brought Star Wars back, back Star for Wars. for a year. It just, they just, oh, you know what? It was great with Star Wars. We'll just keep on going. Why don't we just do another year? What, of that? How would we do a year of Star Wars? Because Sorcerer was so bad. <laughs> Get back to us in a year and we'll see if we want to see Sorcerer. And uh, the heads of Paramount, when uh, freaking screened the film during during the edit, they didn't like it. They didn't get the prologues. They like, oh, you know, why are they so long? This is like half of the movie. It's like, it's not half the movie. It's, it's 25 minutes. Like, it's fun. Like, it's not, yeah. it's not, it's not, stop exaggerating. Uh, so, um, Freakin' had Final Cut, but only in the U.S. So what happened is that when they distributed the film, when they distributed the film uh, outside, uh, they had um, another editor come in and re-edit. Uh, his name is Jim Clark. So Bud Smith was the original editor, and then Jim Clark came in. Uh, he completely, like, just tore the film apart. He he narrowed it down to 90 minutes and even though this is a two-hour film freaking 90 films, minutes is a big change it is but 
Friedkin films don't have a lot of fat on them. Like they, no. even if they're some of them are long, they don't seem long, and they're the they, nothing is there for not for for no reason. Mm-hmm. It's everything is there for a reason, and it's just it's perfect the way it is. Uh, and he's just chopped it down to ninety minutes, and he integrated the prologues as flashbacks because you know that's what you do. That's when what you, you do. Yeah, but it doesn't. I watched some of it. It's so bad. It's not good. It's not. I, I was dreading watching it because I didn't want to alter my vision of this film. You have the characters talking, um, and their lips aren't moving. You know, so they were. That kind of so stuff. So they added dialogue in to make sense of it. So you have uh, uh, the boss of you know the oil company just in a TNT room and like, oh. It's empty, and he's like, oh, there's no more TNT. I wonder where we put all that old TNT. Like a and, Godzilla movie. It's <laughs> like, like that it's kind like, of quality. Then, uh, you don't need to have him say this stuff, you know? And you, Or you have Roy Scheider say, oh, we have 280 miles, to, 218 miles to go. And then and then uh, he says, oh, 15 minutes between trucks, so we don't explode. And, like, we, we understand all that stuff. Why do you have to put that in it's kind of like the harrison ford narration and blade runner where it's like added after the fact to make it more clear and that's obviously the only serve like the purpose that it has and it's so it shows that some people have it and some people don't when it comes to like being an artist and some people just have no clue what the fuck they're doing and they see something they don't get and they have no prescription of how to fix it other than to just like spell it out for people and when when freaking found that out, you know, uh, he sent Bud Smith uh, to London, his editor, yeah. to see what it was. And then he went to the studio or to the distributor and says, like, can I see it? Like, where can I see it? Oh, you can go down to the cinema and see it. I was like, what? Like, it's it's showing? He went to see it. Called freaking up. like, they turned this into a real piece of shit. Like, oh, no. This is awful. But in France and Sweden, they have um, more protection uh, towards uh, like artists and their work and that he was able to sue and was able to release the film in its in its true form mm-hmm. in France and in France they loved it the, crit- the critiques loved him uh, they, uh, the critiques loved Sorcerer but in, as opposed to the US where they destroyed it and that's why no one went to see it you know mm-hmm. but in France they really they really enjoyed it um, uh, and in the US even after you couldn't uh, you couldn't find a you couldn't find a copy that was widescreen uh, during VHS and and you know, you know going to the uh, blockbuster to rent movies. You couldn't find a widescreen version. It was all formatted to fit your screen. Mm-hmm. Which, of, which 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 for be, for that being the name of the show, that truly is one of the greatest crimes. Yeah. In, in, in like film presentation and video release. I, re- I prefer the black bars. Like just you put, need the just bars. make it smaller. Put the black bars. Don't make it full screen and and and, and four thirds. Like to butcher the like you don't you don't want to see the Mona Lisa cropped either. No. Like it's so they restored it ten years ago hmm. and it was released. By, uh, 2000 released to the public uh, or in some parts of the world maybe in 2015 I know in 2015 they did a big retrospective and yeah. Friedkin went around the world and showed his film and he went to France and he showed it and in France it wasn't known as Sorcerer it was still known as The Wages of Fear mm-hmm. and uh, and they wanted to re- and they wanted to call it The Convoy of Fear because it, Convoy we had that to Ottawa because of the last con- year <laughs> The Convoy of Fear <laughs> Just as a nod to yeah. the Clouseau film, but uh, it, um, but it was known as uh, just 
the wages of fear uh, in France. Salaire de la peur, just as a remake, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, it's. I, I wonder if it's going to appear, if Sorcerer is going to appear on a top 100 list of uh, like site, uh, of, uh, like what, Sight and Sound? Sight and Sound, yeah. I wonder if it's going to appear on that top 100 list one day because, you know, films, uh, even if they're old, they get appreciated differently as they age or as you know as we view films uh, they, they sort of we view them differently as a society you know yeah well I think about like <clears throat> I think famously talk about the sight and sound list that when they did that list in 2012 the number one movie was Vertigo yeah they which, changed it and, but like, but for Hitchcock, that was not one of his successful movies at the time. wasn't well received. The Jimmy Stewart performance was criticized. Was not one of his successful, beloved, well-known movies, and wasn't available for decades after that as well. And then people saw it to be the masterpiece. And like a lot of um, filmmakers, they have there. You know, someone like Coppola. He has like the Godfather movies that are always going to be the big classics but then the real film nerds the guys you know who are reading Friedkin on Friedkin and stuff they go oh the conversation that's actually his best movie and like people always like to have the lesser known more obscure well actually that's the one that's better you know you really have to see well it's funny that you say the conversation because Friedkin just hates the conversation because it's a dud he thinks it's a it's a it's a it's a ripoff of blow up but he's but he's just so he's so just like full of you have to take everything he says with a grain of salt because oh, I feel yeah. I think totally everything he says about his contemporaries is all about like a like a, a remark that was made at the Academy Awards in 1972. Like these aren't criticisms of the movies. This is a guy who's just petty about people he's known a long time and that he just buries their work because of it. I feel he he recognizes though his pettiness and his assholeness. I don't know. <laughs> it's quite the term, but. Uh, you get you make the French connection in The Exorcist. Maybe you get to be like a dick. I think I think the you know the Me Too era really solidified that like artists don't have free reign to just be complete animals and monsters and like no performance in a movie or no like artistic statement you know justifies you know that kind of thing. But at the same time, I do have respect for egos and for like yeah. crazy narcissists and like. When someone is so fucking high on their own supply and full of themselves and they make these big proclamations, I kind of like it. I love seeing people who have that much uh, juice still and like self-confidence. It's hilarious that he was actually offered to be producer on Star Wars. Uh, Coppola came up to him and said, you have to produce this. It's great. It's from this kid, George Lucas. And then he read it and was like, oh, this is a piece of shit. Like, I don't want to read. I don't want to produce this. <laughs> this has Wookiees. Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. And then his film bombs right after Star Wars released, and it's like one of the biggest box office successes of all time. And Hollywood just and turns into the house that George Lucas built. So ironic. Yeah. It's, it's this. Like, you kind of feel sorry for Friedkin at that point, you know? <laughs> Poor guy. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for going in depth with Sorcerer uh, on this episode with me here. This was an opportunity, this is normally a show where I'm going back and I'm seeing movies that I've seen a million times before, 
and I've got, you know, I've had a lifetime of opportunity to see things in them and to notice and pick up on things. And then it's an exciting thing on the show when I get to see something for the first time and I get to take all the training that I do rewatching other movies and like focus it on like, okay, I have to understand this movie immediately. And <clears throat> it's nice to go through and have someone else be the subject matter expert and kind of bring the enthusiasm and give the viewers the context of what's going on why the movie matters and yeah i was uh i i would recommend that anyone go check out sorcerer on youtube for free <laughs> where um, or or buy the blu-ray which i'm sure is uh nicely restored and looks very good but i'm sure it also looks good on youtube as well yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me. And uh, it is an old film, but it's also a new film. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's 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 not uh, it's 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 okay that you haven't seen it yet, but it's good that you can you know rediscover mm -hmm. something uh, that was uh, not readily available before. So mm -hmm. uh, I've maybe I was all over the place talking because I'm very that's enthusiastic. What podcasts are that's what that's so exactly what this, about this format is about. <laughs> And that's why I urge uh, anyone to go uh, and see it. And uh, you, even Clouseau's film, you know, uh, if you want to compare. But don't watch that. Don't watch that 90-minute version. No. Don't do it. Don't, don't do, do it. it. I, I did it. I did it for you guys. <laughs> oh, I'm like you. I have no regrets about Only God Forgives. I think it's a masterpiece, and it is. I just didn't make it very expensive. Is there a doctor in the house? We, we need to get a medic in here. Is there, is there a doctor around? <laughs> I just didn't make you, it. I, if you I, think I that's a masterpiece, what is Citizen Kane? It's great. But it's very in, it was an inexpensive movie, so financially... Who gives a shit? I have just two questions left. When you were mentioning... I have a third. Where is there a medic for this man? <laughs> when you were mentioning... Did you hear the ambulance pull up? And that was Sorcerer. My thanks again to Paul for being on the show. If you're enjoying the show, you can check us out on Instagram at formatted to fit That's where we do updates about upcoming shows and post clips of upcoming episodes. And we also have some movie news and light memeing. We keep it very fun over there. You can email into the show at formattedtofitpod at gmail.com if you want to recommend topics for the future or guests for the future or if you'd like to be a guest yourself. If you're a new listener and you enjoyed this episode, please do consider checking out the back catalog for past episodes such as Kids in the Hall Brain Candy, Something's Gotta Give, and Jaws. In two weeks, we will be crossing over to our 50th episode on this show as well as marking our uh, Good Friday Easter Spectacular here on the show uh, with returning guest Scott Hamilton for a discussion of 1993's Army of Darkness directed by Sam Raimi. Episode 50, this is a pretty big deal. This is, uh, I think right around now, this is longer on this show than I ever did doing my previous two shows with Spencer, uh, Hey Let's Adapt That and Enter Sandman, so this is very exciting. And it was a lot of fun doing this episode with Scott, so I'm excited to bring it to you in two weeks. But for now, thanks for listening.